Thank you, Paulette. You, it, this may be a terrible way to end the class, <laughs> um, but we're thankful for the invitation to uh, to share with you. When uh, you know, I think about somebody says, "Well, tell us about your tell us about your story." It's like, "Oh, you want me to talk about me?" Well, <laughs> but then it's also sort of terrifying reality. You know, when as um, those of us who are believers in Christ know that we have always two things with us. We have the reality of our brokenness and the reality the realities of the gifts of God. And that's kind of how we're going to frame that latter thing, the notion of the gifts of God. It's kind of how we want to frame it. You know, with autobiography as a genre, someone kind of tries to tell the whole of their story as much as space will allow. Um, but memoir, on the other hand, is a genre in which one just tells select little snippets of a story. Uh, typically under a given lens that holds the whole thing together. And so we're going to just kind of do a little memoirish kind of stuff today, rather than even try to begin to sketch out the whole. And the lens that Laura and I talked about is the notion of the faithfulness of God, especially seen in the gifts of God, and our learning to see all things as gift. Uh, there's a I can't, I can't draw his name up. Some of you probably know his name, a medieval philosopher, theologian who... who who said, if the only prayer you ever say in your life is thank you, that's enough. Of course, we theologians would argue with anybody and say, well, it's probably not quite enough. But, <laughs> but you get the point, right? There's something beautiful about a life that's postured to say thank you. And for me, um, it's learning to have a posture of seeing even the hard things as gift. Or at least, let me be more careful, more nuanced, as seeing the gifts that come out of the hard things, because there are truly bad things in life. And yet, nonetheless, the promise of Romans 8, that God will bring good even out of the bad stuff, and learning to have gratitude for all of those things. So that's kind of the frame that we're doing today. Laura's going to go first, and then me. All right. So I know everyone is here for Lee. And that is fine with me. I've gotten used to that a long time ago. I am comfortable with that. Um, I um, grew up here in Nashville. Um, I have known some of you for a long, long time. So um, John and Lynn I've known since I was a little girl because they did work with my dad, and I've known them since, like, before puberty. Um, and I've always uh, felt very connected to John. John says 1971. <laughs> so I was two when I met John and Lynn. <laughs> um, but I've known that of the Shrigleys for a long time. My, um, my first memory of being introduced to Otter Creek at all was I visited Vacation Bible School with Janelle Sham back in the 70s and it was at the old building of course and it, I think it was in the room that was used as the uh, like you know where meals would be had I can't remember what that room is called right now and Paul and maybe Paul and Janet but Paul was doing puppet show a puppet show and I was there my sister and I were there with Janelle to visit Otter Creek Vacation Bible School so um, lot, lots of references in this room, and Otter Creek's always been very special to me. I've, I've known of it all my life, and we have been here since 2001 or two, somewhere in there, so about 20 years. Um, I grew up here in Nashville. Um, my dad is in the back. Um, 
I went to, I'm the oldest of four girls. My sisters would say I'm bossy. I would not disagree with them on that. Um, my uh, mom, who died 16 years ago, kind of like Albert Lee, just kind of was fine, and then all of a sudden she wasn't here anymore um, at the same age. She died 16 years ago, but her personality is, and, and Gail knew her, Gail Shrigley, um, and John and Lynn, of course, her personality is quieter and introverted and shy. <clears throat> and that's not the sum total of my mother, but that, that, that's how she would strike you. And then my dad, for those of you who don't know, know him, can be kind of outspoken and bold and has a lot of opinions <laughs> and <laughs> feels confident telling you what they are. And so I have got, I'm like half my mom and half my dad. So in different circles, it's really surprising to people to hear, like at work, on an executive team where I was COO for seven years, they can't picture me quiet and shy and introverted. And at church, since I'm Lee Camp's wife, and I'm, everyone knows him, and I'm the dark-headed woman married to Lee, <laughs> um, and I'm sister camp to a lot of people because they can't remember my name. <laughs> I, it's surprising to them to hear that I'm a COO and that I'm pretty, uh, I, I can get in there with you and, and argue and uh, make my case for how I think things ought to be. So I'm a good mix of my mom and dad. I grew up at Belmont Church here in Nashville. I think a lot of you know about Belmont Church probably. Um, I had a very positive experience growing up at Belmont Church. And one thing that was always impressed on me at Belmont and by my parents is that um, uh, following Jesus is hard. It's not, um, it's not something that you just do lightly or whimsically. It it means lifestyle decisions. It, le it means reordering of priorities. It means ordering the way you uh, spend money. It means, sometimes it means where you live and what your occupation is. Um, and I remember at Belmont, we, we always talked about, and I remember very specifically in a fifth grade Sunday school class, our teacher was talking about loving God and how important that that be the first love of our life and the biggest and best love of our life. And as a fifth grader, I thought, oh, shoot, God is not my number one. I don't love God as much as I love my family. I couldn't get my head around, how does that work? I, I want to do what you're saying, but I am not there. I got, I got very afraid about that. Uh, not, not cripplingly afraid, but I, I w it was impressed on me, this is a big deal, being a Christian is a big deal. Um, tithing was, a, was impressed upon me really big at Belmont and by my parents. My mother would keep, <clears throat> she did our household finances and she did everything on a paper ledger and tithing was always at the top. And, um, you know, she made it clear, my, both my parents were very generous, but mom made sure that tithing got done and she made it clear, yep, this is what, this is what we do, you tithe. That was impressed on me, and both of my parents taught me, um, you pray, and then you wait for God to give you what you need. 
whether that's guidance or, you know, a decision or financial resources or a job or whatever, a relationship, you pray and then you wait. And, and so it was, you know, all of that, um, I'm very grateful for. That was God's grace to me, that I grew up in a household like that and in a church community like that where those were my, that was my frame of reference. So when I met Lee and went to Lipscomb, um, it was like, now this was in the 80s and things were different, um, but it, it was like, what? What is the five-step plan of salvation? What? Lee was so shocked when we went out on our first date, or one of our first dates, and he mentioned the five-step plan of salvation. And I was a freshman at Lipscomb and had not grown up in Churches of Christ. And I said, what is the five-step plan of salvation? And he was floored. He was shocked <laughs> that I called myself a Christian and didn't know the five steps. So it may surprise you that when I met Lee, he was as conservative as conservative gets. One day I was wearing shorts on campus. We were playing intramural, an intramural softball game. And Lee and I... <laughs> Lee and I had, had dated some and he walked by and he didn't say hi to me I was like and he walked by and didn't say hi to me and my friend Gretchen who was with me said you know why he didn't say hi to you and I said now why and she said it's because you're in shorts and Lee Camp does not believe in shorts and so he, he was conservative, five-step plan of salvation, no shorts. Um, and so when I took him home to meet my family, I'm telling a total, I'm doing this totally differently than how I wrote down. <laughs> I'm not even looking at this anymore. Um, when I took him home to meet my family, for the first time, well, first of all, Dad gave him a really hard time. Dad was on the phone and... Dad said, Lars brought a boy home. I don't know what I think about him. And Lee, you know, Lee's sitting there probably in a stiff and in a suit, waiting to get to know my family. He wasn't really in a suit. But my mother and my all three of my sisters and I were all in one chair. You know how you do that? <laughs> so we were all in one chair, and Lee was on the other side of the room, and we were all just looking at him. <laughs> and we were waiting for Dad to get off the phone. And after we left that night, you know, I talked to my mother later. And I said, what did you think? And she said, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> she, was she had grown up in a conservative Church of Christ home. That's how Belmont was. It was. To me, it seemed like it was a bunch of Church of Christ people who had been raised in really conservative Church of Christ upbringings and who were over that, um, and they wanted, they wanted to be, have some freedom from that. And so I knew about all that, but I wasn't raised in that, so it was always like hearing a story that I wasn't part of. But Mom recognized some of what she saw in Lee, and she said, no, you don't want to marry a conservative Church of Christ person who wants to be a preacher, because her dad was a preacher, and they were conservative. And their conservative church ate their family alive when life started happening to their family and to her siblings. They just ate them alive. And just it, it was just a strong sense of betrayal 
by the church where her dad had served for years and years and years. So she said, no, don't, don't do that. <laughs> now, in the end, I'll say, um, before I move on, that my mother, before she died, thought Lee Camp was all that. She used to call him a mighty fine son-in-law. And I remember I threw Lee a 40th birthday party, and we were playing this game, and all of his friends, including um, <clears throat> some of your children, um, uh, we were, you know, some of the people in the game were kind of razzing Lee a little bit. And my mother took it too personally for Lee, and she felt the need to defend Lee. And she said, when it was her turn to say something in the game, she said, now you listen to me. Lee Camp is the finest son-in-law I could ever have. <laughs> we, we all thought it was adorable because it was just a game, and we were just fun. But she was very, uh, very Team Lee. So um, I think what I'll say in my last few minutes is that um, the grace of God in my life um, has looked like my upbringing. It has looked like Lee Camp. Um, it has looked like three beautiful boys who we have real relationships with and who um, it's just been such a huge privilege to raise. It, it was harder, way, way harder to raise them than I thought it would be, especially the older two. We have been through the fire with the older two. And the fire lasted years and years and years with both of them. Um, and the fire may not be over, <laughs> or the fire may recur. Um, and there were days when with parenting we thought, when will we ever be finished parenting? And they are 28, 26, and 23 now, and we still wonder, <laughs> when will we be finished parenting? <laughs> so none of them live at home. Um, but it has been the biggest privilege of my life to be a mother to these three boys. Um, I, um, it has been a, a huge gift in my life to be married to Lee. Um, Lee is my favorite person <laughs> ever. He is my favorite human being. And that has always been the case, even though we have been through the fire in our marriage. And the fire for us lasted probably seven years. And it got really, really, really hot. Um, <clears throat> and um, there were times when, um, you know, I thought, when is this going to end? When are we going to come out on the other side of it? And it took a long, long time. Um, but he never stopped being my favorite person. I didn't feel all warm and fuzzy, but it, it was like still, yeah, he, he's my person, um, so I'm super, I'm super grateful for Lee and for the children. Um, I am grateful for God's grace to me through my work. I um, was a stay-at-home mom for 12 years, um, and then it was very clear that I needed to go back to work financially and emotionally. I have a big personality. And so we needed the money, and we needed it about four years before I went back to work. <laughs> but I, I was able to channel some of the energy that I brought to the household to work. 
and that was good for everybody in my household. Um, so it has meant a lot to me to be able to contribute to our household finances since 2006 especially. Um, and I am really grateful. I've always prayed what mom and dad taught me to pray. Um, I've prayed, Lord, please give me good work to do and help me to honor others with my work and help me to bring glory to you and give me challenging work um, and help me contribute to our finances. And he has always answered that prayer through different jobs. <clears throat> so I'm really grateful for that. The last thing I wanted to say that I'm really grateful for is when I was a little girl and I wasn't sure, do I love God enough to really be a Christian? Um, I can say it's much easier at 53 to love God enough because I've been through all these fires um, and I so desperately, desperately need God. Um, I didn't even mention some of my health scares. I've had some, I've had two really scary health scares in my adult life. And so between family stuff and health scares and the children's health, um, I have realized my utter dependence on God on a daily basis. And um, last thing, um, I think it was Jane Heather Clayton years ago when she and Rogers were doing a communion devotional, she talked about the one-year Bible and how she still reads the one-year Bible. And we always have one-year Bibles in our house, especially when they came out. Dad bought like 30 of them and gave them out to every, all the cousins and aunts and uncles. So I thought, oh, people still use the one-year Bible. So when, when Jane Heather said that, I thought, I'm just going to go back to the one-year Bible. That's a great way to read the Bible every day. Um, and I did. And since then, I've just been reading the Bible through um, over and over and over again. And I, I don't necessarily do it in a year. It takes me a year and a half or two years. But I've probably read the Bible three times now. And I can't tell you how much scripture means to me um, and how the Psalms, I cling to those Psalms when we're in those fires. Um, uh, so if that encourages you in any way, um, I am grateful. But I'm, I'm really grateful for how God has been faithful to me in all of these ways. So I'm going to hand it over to Lee. Hey, Lee, before you get started there, so on that God, I've forgotten the story, but it was a meaningful one. So on that God doesn't love me, the thing that you were talking about. So I've gone, I've been to Washington every week for 12, 20 years. And so I came in from one of those quick trips, and we were all sitting that night. Laura was about, I was about 10 years old, 10 or 11. Not 10. And, uh, and so I've got my suit on and hanging out. I go back in there. We had a walk-in closet. So I'm in there changing clothes to go to the Bible study. And Laura met me at the door, followed me down the hallway, into the closet. And she said, Dad, I need to talk to you about something. I had my back to her. And she said, Dad, I don't love God and Jesus. And that been, ugh. So then I, she got my attention. I turned around, and we both sat down in the floor, in the closet. And I said, well, what do you mean? At the same time, I was saying, God, how do I respond? And 
she said, well, you know, we talk about loving God and Jesus. We talk about it in church. We talk about it here. And I just don't love God and Jesus like I love you and Lisa and Carrie. And I said to her, I said, well, you know, I think when you come to know God as intimately as you know us, you will love God as much and hopefully more than you love us. I've forgotten that. I love that story. I love that story. I'm thankful to... Um, yeah, I think one of the things that this has been a wonderful exercise for Lauren and me both just to be reminded of how many stories of <coughs> gifts we've been given and have received. And <coughs> I would echo, you know, I remember I was thinking this morning about our wedding day and we got married at the old West End building. And um, I remember in our vows I was talking about be being best friends. And... Uh, we've worked at that, and it's been a, uh, it's been beautiful, and and as, as Laura said, very very hard, and yet beautiful and wonderful. And I'll, if I have a chance, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But Laura, Laura's uh, of the two of us, she's definitely the best Christian. I mean, it's, and I'm not being falsely modest, um, you know, in terms of praying and trusting, in terms of um, memorizing scripture. Uh, one of the things Laura would never tell you is that sometimes what she does, like if she's by herself or on a drive, is that she'll read her memories of Scripture because she's got so much there. And uh, it's, it's a very real, lived experience for her. And um, I love her. I'm very thankful for her. When um, I, I, I'm going to try to hit three bullet points real quick. And one would be that one of my earliest memories as a child was a sort of, uh, by, by the time I turned a teenager, early 20s, I, I saw it as a mystical experience, and it was a recurring experience I would have of a moment of comfort and terror. And I think this happened when I was four or five years old, I don't know, but it would be this sort of, I'd be lying in bed, and I would have this sense of something so humongously large next juxtaposed with something tiny and present. And as I said, I would just have this sense of being both terrified and deeply comforted. And then when I was 12, I think, it was before my baptism, so I may have been 10, 11, 12, before my baptism, I, I remember where I was standing in our house, I was by myself, and I had this sense of calling. And all I remember was going to get a piece of paper and a pencil. And I wrote on that piece of paper, I will obey. And I folded it up and put it away. And so from a very young age, I kind of had this, this sense of, um, of calling that I didn't always like, didn't always know what to do with, but I'm grateful for it. And I've had s several other experiences. I'm, not, I'm a very rationalistic kind of person. I'm a good... I'm a good, I am a good Church of Christ person in the sense that I'm very rationalistic. I'm very distrustful of people who talk too much out of emotion, who are willy-nilly about what God's telling them. But nonetheless, I've had these experiences I'm deeply grateful for that I received as a gift. So anyway, that kind of set me up. 
in, in my, and one of the things I've come to learn is the way in which so often most everything about life is both um, difficulty and gift at the same time. So, for example, the preacher that came to our church when I was an adolescent who was very formative upon my thinking. So, for example, the reason that Laura walked past that day and my and I actually didn't see her that day. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not telling. It, I'm not lying. I didn't see her, but there was a very good reason that her friend Gretchen told her that, because it was true. What Gretchen told her was true. About that's the way I was wired. That's the way my convictions were. And so that preacher that I had as an adolescent. Here I am as an adolescent boy, experiencing adolescent things. And, and yet one of the things that happens is that the, we're sitting in the church van one day on a youth group trip, and we're pulling out of the church parking lot in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and the preacher looks down the sidewalk and sees a man jogging up the sidewalk in shorts. And he looks at him and he says, he looks real nice in those shorts. He'll look real nice in hell. And he was not being funny. And there I am as a 13-year-old thinking, well, hell, I'm fried. <laughs> and so, um, you know, one of the things that we discerned for me as a seventh grader, as I recollect, the, the youth group decided as a seventh grader that one of the ways I could bear witness to the gospel was not to participate that six weeks in PE because they were doing square dancing and Christians don't dance. And so that sort of obsessiveness about what is really just normal human natural adolescent development began to be deeply ingrained in me as a sort of neurotic concern about lust. And you know what happens when you get all sorts of shame put on you about something is it, it takes on all the more power. So I'll talk more about that in just a second. But, but the gift there was that here we had this preacher that, that ladled all this dysfunction and ugliness on me and yet at the same time, he taught me and other boys in that church to stand up and I preached my first sermon as a 13-year-old or 14-year-old, preaching about the theory of evolution and talking about the second law of thermodynamics as if I knew what in the heck that was all about. But he taught us to stand up in front of a group of people and he gave me a sense of vocation, right? And so it was like both gift and brokenness at the same time. And in so many ways, I think that's what life is about. Uh, as a matter of fact, some years later, I was in a men's group, and I was actually talking about, you know, struggles with lust. And I started talking about that story in PE, about the square dancing thing, and a Jewish man came up to me afterwards. I've told this in a sermon. Some of you may have heard me tell the story. A Jewish man came up to me afterwards, and he said, I heard that story, you know, about, about the, the square dancing. And he said, yeah, of course, that was silly. And he said, but I've heard you talk about the way in which in your vocation and career you're often talking about things that are pushing against the grain and people come at you and give you a hard time. And he said, that church gave you a gift. He said, how many seventh graders do you think were taught to have the capacity to sit to the side when all their other peers are doing something else and you sit there and have the integrity not to do it? He said, they gave you a gift. And he completely reconfigured the resentment I had 
about those sorts of experiences. Well, so the sense of vocation then, um, years later, I remember sitting with a therapist, and she knew at the time I was from Church of Christ, she knew I was doing a PhD at Notre Dame, and what, that I was studying, uh, doing a PhD in theology and moral theology, and she was, taught, she was kind of giving us a crash course on the dynamics of addiction, because we had stuff in, in both sides of our family, and we're trying to learn stuff about this. And at the end, she kind of gives us this crash course, and at the end, she said, now, she pointed at me, and she said, I want to tell you something. She said, the majority of the people that we have come through the VITA program at Vanderbilt are from Churches of Christ or Catholics. And so she knows I'm Church of Christ and going to Notre Dame. She said, they're Church of Christ or Catholic. And she said, I want you to know, bad theology messes up people's lives. <laughs> and so a large sense of my vocation has been, one, do no harm. And two, know that there are a lot of people carrying around a lot of grief and a lot of hurt and a lot of dysfunction and a lot of brokenness because of the pain that was ladled on them by bad theology that has messed up their lives. And so I'm grateful to get to do that kind of work, the power of ideas, of constructs, of good theology, because the gospel is beautiful, and trying to find a way to articulate it in a way that it can be seen as beautiful as it is. Oh, quickly hit um, back to the notion of, of my brokenness in the way I've experienced God's grace and my brokenness. Um, if I were to kind of give you the high points of the, the four big ways, at least four of the big ways my life has been broken, I would say that it's lust, anxiety, resentment, and depression. I never knew depression until 2013, 14, and 15, and it was one of the most darkest and most difficult seasons of my life. I would never wish that on anybody. Um, and in some ways, um, you know, the, the struggles with lust that I began to experience as a, as a boy, um, anxiety, I was wired for anxiety, starting in seventh grade to get treated for an ulcer because I was just wired for anxiety. Um, I, had, I, had, I, was, I was on and off antacids for decades. Um, and then the resentment and, uh, you know, the old line about resentment. Resentment's drinking poison, hoping the other guy dies, you know, and to come to realize all that kind of stuff. But what I realized through all of that stuff is the gifts of God and ways to live that I, I wouldn't trade for anything. I would, I would never choose to go through that depression, for example, again. But I know that I learned things through that depression that I, I'm so hard-headed, I don't know that I would have learned them otherwise. I've learned things through my lust that drove me so crazy as a young person and as a young man that I wouldn't want to go through all that stuff again. The waste of emotional energy, the waste of time, and yet I learned things through that that I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, same thing with my anxiety. And all of these things taught me trust and rules of life and ways of life and the graces and gifts of God that I'm so thankful for today. Third one I'll point to real, real quickly, just notions of love and friendship. The, uh, Laura noted about how um, we've, 
had this very sweet, wonderful relationship that's also been at times deeply distressed. There's a, there's a therapist I like. He's, he's not a Christian. His name is Schnarch. I forget his first name right now. Um, he has a, he's a book, uh, several books on marriage, and he's a big proponent of lifetime committed relationships. And in one of his books, he talks about marriage in which he says what a lot of people call troubled marriage is marriage. <laughs> and that's immensely helpful, right? Because for me, this is much more on my side. I brought in perfectionistic, unrealistic expectations about marriage. And therefore, when reality didn't fit my unrealistic expectations, I didn't know what to do with that. Uh, but, but what he says is that, you know, no, actually what you do is you, get, you come into a relationship, you get into kind of homeostasis in the relationship, and then you need to grow because of something new that develops. And you can either find a way to um, grow and find a bigger way to live together and a larger, more all-encompassing way together and find a new beautiful homeostasis, or you can try to stay in what you're in and you just get resentful and angry. Or you can't take that anymore and you get out and you go get in another relationship and you start the whole thing over again. And so that was very helpful for us. It's like what we're doing has, is not working now and so we've got to find some new way to be together and to love each other. The um, things like me learning to get over my conflict avoidance. Me in both love and friendship, and one of the things that I look back on my learning to deal with lust is that um, two big things that immediately come to mind. One is that my lust taught me I have to learn to be honest with other people about myself. That I have to learn to be vulnerable. Because I can, I, you know, I can stay in my own head, and I cannot, I cannot deal with this by staying in my own head. And another thing it taught me was that, um, and I learned this from the Catholics in talking about virtue traditions. The, the Catholics, typically going back to Aquinas, who goes back to Aristotle, the whole notion there with them is that desires are never bad. Desires are gifts to us challenge in growing as a human being is learning to have one's desires rightfully ordered. And so they'll speak of inordinate desire or disordered desire. And it's inordinate or disordered desire that leads us to destruction. It's not desire. And so it's trying to find the way in which desire can be rightfully ordered. And so, for example, one of the major things that I've learned out of the, the desire behind lust is that what I'm desiring is intimacy, healthy intimacy with other human beings, both men and women. How can I have healthy, intimate relationships with both men and women in such a way that that's a rightful ordering of the desire for intimacy? Um, and so again, it's, it's one of those things, it's one of those classic cases where that which comes as such a grief has within it, under God's providence and God's grace, the capacity for a gift and a new way of looking at life and living life in a new sort of way. All sorts of uh, graces 
all sorts of gifts for which I'll, uh, I'll always be thankful. I'll close, I'll close with this, that, um, you know, I remember when I was in the throes of my depression, and this must have been 2014, 2015, it was a very cold winter morning, and I couldn't sleep, which often accompanies a lot of depression. So I was up super early, it was still dark, like four o'clock in the morning or something, and we have a wood-burning stove fireplace insert that we burn a lot of fires. So I got up, there was no wood on the front porch, and so I trudged through the cold and the, everything was kind of frozen on the ground, and I pushed the wheelbarrow back to the woodshed and I loaded up with wood. I'm so depressed and I'm so grieved and I load up the wood and I'm pushing it back to the house and I just got it back up on the driveway and I one of those few mystical experiences you are my beloved and I sat down that wheelbarrow and I said you don't love me And then it was, what more would you have me do for you? This is the love of God, right? The beautiful gifts of God that are so tangible and real when I have eyes to see them. But so often I don't have the eyes to see them. And this, again, is even the gift of God. Everything's grace. It's all grace. And even the capacity to see life as gift is itself the gift of God. And so we're so thankful. I'm so thankful. Laura and I together are so thankful to have grown and learned to see the gifts of God, which are so real and so beautiful and so gracious. Thank you.